We acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that we benefit from the colonial structures and policies that remain in place today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people and recognise their ongoing struggles in dismantling those structures. During the First World War, strikes caused fuel shortages so severe that the Victorian government reopened the old brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. And the state government has outlined a long-term plan to ensure the Latrobe Valley remains viable as its economy moves away from coal-fired energy. It's been the lifeblood of the Latrobe Valley for decades, but continual change in the power industry and the introduction of the carbon tax means it's time for a plan B. It's a month tomorrow since fire entered the Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's east. Fire has been burning for weeks now, blanketing the township in a toxic smoke. The housing estates are literally just 50 metres away, so when the wind blows in the other direction, they take all of that in. The guillotine has finally come down on Australia's dirtiest power station, Hazelwood. It's caused jitters about electricity prices and raised questions about Australia's readiness for a low-carbon future. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. The Latrobe Valley's coal mines could be filled with water and made into a tourist attraction to rival Italy's Lake Como. Sorry, Josie. Yes, Steph? Look, where are we right now? I mean, it was a toilet, <laughs> if that helps with the size. Yeah, we made a podcast room, so I think there's some apologies all around to people's eardrums for last episode. I feel like I had no idea that um, speakers and stuff could, like, autocorrect. So here I was being like, we absolutely nailed it. It was a challenging one. We recorded in a big um, gallery space, and I'm like, yeah, look, that mix was really, you know, <laughs> I thought it was great too. Yeah. And then I was like, we got some, we got some feedback. The first person to warn me about the audio was my mum, and I was like, yeah, whatever, mum, it's fine. She's like, like, no, with her ears. No. But actually, your mum completely. Yeah, like, she was bang on the money. So, okay, lesson learned, we will always listen to your mum, and we already kind of basically yeah. did. I know it's been a minute since we recorded, yes. but I want you to tell me, what is the G- N-E-C. What does it stand for? Why did we go? And what did it look like? Sure, I can absolutely do that. So <laughs> back in August on the 11th and the 12th of this year, which was a long time ago, Good memory. we went to the Gippsland New Energy Conference known mm, as mm, the GNEC. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> so the GNEC was a conference, a, gather, a, a gathering of people in industry, in training, in government, in some community groups, a gathering of all those people in the energy sector that have propositions for wind projects or that might need to get on board with training work. Like, you know, TAFEs need to train the workers to work in energy projects. So they all came together to talk about, you know, what was happening with each of them and what steps needed to be taken. My understanding was it was the first thing of its kind in the area, even though we've been, like, in basically transition for the last, like, 20 years and that it felt like a very necessary step in order to get everybody in a room and have the conversations technically to the public that had been happening behind closed doors. Is that sort of 
Yes, the intention. So that is that was sort of the intention because, like you just said, I thought everyone would be communicating anyway, and I think there is some of that happening. But I think that it really isn't. Ha- it's not happening in a place like you say where the public can access. So the GNEC was an a- attempt to get industry and training and government and business and community groups talking all together. Now we were invited along to the Gippsland New Energy Conference. Um, we were sponsored to go as part of the community outreach that they're trying that the conference was trying to do that's why we were able to go it was pretty expensive it was $290 um so which isn't super super accessible to a lot of um you know just general community members i think it was only accessible to people that were in you know business and industry largely yeah and also available in the middle of the workday exactly so yeah a little inaccessible <laughs> yeah. but i believe like it was thrown together relatively quickly that is correct yeah. that is my understanding too it was thrown together really quickly so i don't like you're the event specialist uh, what's it like to run an event with not a long lead time catastrophic it's <laughs> really distressing so i think um <laughs> that it was very well intentioned but one of my criticisms of the gippsland new energy conference is that i did i feel that it should have been more accessible to members of the general public who wanted to know. And I am not sure that that information is getting disseminated out. I didn't see a lot of news coverage about the event. You know, we learned so many valuable things. We spoke to so many valuable people. And I think that other people in Gippsland and in the Latrobe Valley in particular need to know about this. So I think that's the good, like, like maybe give us a walkthrough. So I think what's really important is like the goal of this podcast is to summarize kind of what went down because obviously we bore witness. We've also since then done some sort of pickup interviews, like sort of getting other perspectives and expanding upon what we found out at the conference. So do you want to lead us through what's happening in this episode just so people have like a bit of a roadmap of the GNC Steph Spectacular episode? Yeah, G-E- sure. Wait, G-E-N-C. G-E-N-E-C. G-E-N-C, I think, might be like protein. It is. Okay, it's that's what I'm thinking. Powder. All right, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. The GNC crew. G-N-E-C. G-N-E-C. Okay, got you. Rolls off the tongue. Beautiful. All right, what happens in this episode and where do we get? For this episode, firstly, we interviewed a lot of people. So my understanding is that the, we started with the sort of industry side of things. Like we actually got to speak to the people who ran the conference and then we spoke to some people from the Latrobe Valley Authority, I think that's right. And then I actually, it's been so long, I do not remember these interviews. So it's going to be really exciting for me to like go back and figure it out. And then we had like, a kind of like a fan moment where we discovered someone special. We did. We discovered Dr. Jarrah Hicks. At the Gippsland New Energy Conference, everyone was talking about like community-owned or community-benefited renewable energy projects. And I realised that I don't understand what that is or what that really means because we've been living under fossil fuels and privatisation in the Latrobe Valley. And that has left me with a sense that the power station operators, their benefit to the community is a name on a football jersey. It's like, it's, it's symbolic. It's not real, but community owned and community benefited energy projects. It's supposed to be going back into the community in a meaningful way, and the community is supposed to be consulted on these projects in a meaningful way. But I, I have no idea what that is, how that works, or anything. So when we talk to Dr. Yara Higgs, we le- get to learn a bit more about that. So in this episode, we're going to talk about what the Gippsland New Energy Conference was. We're going to talk about what community owned energy uh, looks like, or what it could lo- look like, and what community benefits could actually be coming to Gippsland and the Latrobe Valley. We're going to round it out with a very special interview that you captured 
spur of the moment on the fly. Ooh. With Mayor Callie O'Connor. <gasps> That's right. Oh, my God. Am I, like, the journalist of the year now? Because I interviewed oh, the mayor. So straight. That, that, that was On my really Instagram great. stories, everyone's like, wow, the mayor. I'm like, yeah, I know. The mayor. Yeah. No big deal. And rounding, so we're going to round out the episode <laughs> with the mayor and with then with Marianne Robinson of Voices of the Valley. So we're going to look at the GNEC, look at community energy, and then drop back into the Tro- our Latrobe Valley focus, which is what, you know, we're doing through our podcast. So... That is, in summary, what we're doing in this episode. <laughs> version. Yeah. I, as someone who is the community who loves consulting mm-hmm. or being consulted, am so excited to get my free stuff. Like, I just cannot wait. Do you think yes. it'll be heaps of money? Well, how much money is coming to the economy? Isn't like $33 billion? Well, yeah. So are you talking, referring to the budget or are you I don't referring know. to there? I just have okay, heard cool. some large so, B to T's we had being bandied around. really big numbers being thrown around mm-hmm. at the Gippsland New Energy Conference. So the number we heard there was that there are $40 billion worth worth of renewable energy projects coming to Gippsland. Now, that is huge. I didn't know this either. Like, so everything is being, it feels so proposed at the moment. Yeah. And I, like, I didn't know that there coming was the money. Soon. It's Hold coming tight. soon, right? Yeah. But it's happening. It is really happening. And that yeah. was the most exciting part. So please come with us into what was the Gippsland New Energy Conference. Tell us who we're talking to you first. Um, so, uh, as I said, we spoke to a whole host of people, but I wanted to introduce us first to... Darren McCubbin. Darren McCubbin was the MC of this event and certainly had a lot of pizzazz. But Darren is also the CEO of the Gippsland Climate Change Network and the coordinator of the Community Power Hub. One of the answers I enjoyed of Darren's was when we asked if there was a moment in his life that was pivotal for him to become interested in climate change and sustainability. And I thought he had a really great answer. So let's play clip one. My name is Darren McCubbin. I'm the CEO of the Gippsland Climate Change Network and also the coordinator of the Community Power Hub. When you look at the science, I'm very much based around data and facts. Like this is, whilst my heart probably took a while to engage, my head engaged early and you could absolutely see the way the planet was heading with, with this abundance amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's just been absolutely clear for, for decades that this is what's going on. And I guess for that, it's like, you know, crikey's we just need to get off this train and move somewhere else you know otherwise we're in real trouble species extinction the the way the planet goes and i I, you know there's a thing about aging too where you kind of look at the new generation you think what have i done you know we're just such a consumerist generation it really is terrible and i you know and that that sort of gives you the heart that can't we have to do this and we have to do it now the reason I wanted to play that is because it was a kind of a common thread with everyone we spoke to. Everyone really cares about the environment. And I also really liked that um, Darren was like, what have we done? Yes. And had that kind of accountability for um, self as well. I think as well as needing to know who was there and understanding why, we also need to know what people hoped would come of the GNEC. So we asked that question of pretty much everyone we interviewed, and I thought that we'd also uh, hear Darren's response to that to kick us off. My, my hopes for the outcomes are that there's a greater collaboration between the developers and the and and I guess the community. I think it's we obviously need to travel in a way that reduces our carbon footprint. We need to move to renewables, but I think the Gippsland community needs to have big in control of that. There are clearly going to be some challenges as we put up transmission lines, etc., across the, the landscape, and we need to ensure that people are brought along with that. We as a community need to control that development. We not, don't need to just have this change thrust upon us. 
I genuinely believe that we are on the cusp of a, a generational change. You know, that, that we are going to move from fossil fuels into renewables, but that is clearly going to come at a cost. And for some people, that, that'll be a change of jobs. That might be infrastructure going across their property and so on. So we as Gippsland need to be excited about that, but also aware of some of the problems that are occurring and try to, try to meet those challenges. So I chose that clip as well because it highlights another... Crow. Co- <laughs> a crow, 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 crow. <laughs> he was just like, I don't want a power line in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it highlights a common crow, a common thread um, across the conference of people talking about the industry collaborating with the community. There was just a lot of talk about people that weren't in the room. A lot of um, technical language and a bit inaccessible language. So I think that would be definitely something I'd be interested in. And I'm sure there are already people doing incredible work. And we know there are people doing incredible work already in the area of how to functionally actually engage the community on these topics. And maybe that's a, that's a space for a different conference where, again, it's like you have the more pizzazzy uh, people come in and do presentations or something, so it's a little more accessible. But, yeah, I'm completely with you. Like, definitely a lot of discussion about what Gippslanders or Latrobe Valley people think when those people weren't really represented, really. And, like, historically, communities have had to fight really, really hard to see change and to see accountability from industry, particularly in the Latrobe Valley. And I think that's really important to remember. And so there's a there's a reason that there is a lot of mistrust and a lot of apprehension from like I can't speak for the whole of Gippsland, but yes, I feel, you can, Steph. Go ahead, do it. I feel it's like I can speak from Latrobe Valley, though. There is a lot of yeah mistrust and misunderstanding, and fear, and a lot of fear going on because we still don't have a goddamn clear transition plan. So I I love that this conference is happening, but I don't know why it didn't happen years ago. Mm, I guess it's so the true. government hold up as well but like we need to need to have been having the discussions about what training to bring in for renewables ages ago but maybe that's the other thing right not just to the point of discussion okay we've had these conversations how do you then actually implement that in the community how do you communicate it so that the kids at Kernai know okay, if I go on this path, I can be trained up to be a windmill fixer or whatever that would be called. Like, that's what I want to understand. That feels like maybe what's lacking. And I know, I think what is happening is like those conversations happening in little pockets and people are doing work, but is it filtering through? I'm not sure about that. So one of the other people that we spoke to at the conference was Ashley Hall. So Ashley Hall grew up in the Latrobe Valley on a dairy farm and loved David Attenborough. (laughs) Ashley spoke of having a very deep connection to our planet and has worked in a broad range of jobs from being a butcher to IT to conservation and land management. He's also worked across various levels of government in environment-focused roles. Currently, he works at the Latrobe Valley Authority in their energy team and was a conference host at the GNEC. Now... I was like, what is a conference host? I I had no idea. So luckily, Ashley told us what a conference host was. So essentially, conference hosts come together with councils and other government agencies to help fill the community and the business supply chain in on what's needed going forward. I literally have like a dog running around in my head when you say that. What does that mean? I know. What is logistics? Like I know what it is. It's like they're figuring out how to get stuff around, but like what do you mean? Luckily, Ashley elaborated (laughs) on that. And so now we're going to play clip three. So my name's Ashley Hall. I work for Latrobe Valley Authority in the energy team and I am one of the conference hosts. So as a host organisation, 
we come together with a lot of the other councils and other government agencies because we realised that it was time that we needed to get a lot more information out because we're in a very privileged position that we know what's going on and being planned for the region. But it is a broader conversation that needs to happen through the community, especially for the business supply chain as well that are working currently for the servicing the coal-fired power stations and giving them time to look at the big opportunities coming so that they can invest and pivot towards servicing the ongoing renewable energy sector. I asked Ashley what the genesis of an event like the GNEC was, and this is what he said. So it's three-pronged, I guess. So we wanted to make sure that supply chain businesses, that they knew that there was a positive future and what they needed to do in-house to pivot to service the renewable energy sector. Some businesses won't have to do a lot because they already have welders and scaffolders and all sorts of you know skills, but other ones might have to transition a little bit where they might be needing people skilled to work over water and the, and the other offshore industry you know opportunities that come along. There's There's also the drain, and I'm a good example of that. Grew up here, went to Melbourne at 17, worked and then moved around, and it took me 17 years to come home as well. That's a story that's right apparent across the region. We wanted to get that across to all of the youth people as well which, uh, you know, because it's always about climate change and it's always a negative conversation. But what we're really trying to say is, hey, it's a great time to be here in Gippsland. Don't leave just yet. Yeah, what did you think about all of that, Josie? How does that sound? Well, I guess it's stuff that I feel like I've heard before coming from this space, having researched it a bit now. You know, yeah, definitely, like, do training for sure. Obviously, like, have the conversation. But I think I'm just a little on 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 the old dubious side of, like, yes... But what specifically are we doing? And maybe they, you know, maybe it was just like not the time and space for that. But I guess I could be wrong. But I do feel like we're kind of talking like this is news. When hasn't this been going on since like the 90s, since the end of the SEC? You have that, you showed me that book where they're talking about the plan in like the 50s. And this is not one any individual. So this shouldn't like, it's not like accusation against any individual person. But I guess the issue when you hear it back to back in a conference like that is like, you know, they're not wrong and those things definitely need to happen. But it does feel like what failures have happened where we're still having this conversation like it's undecided or that there isn't the work or reports or studies or whatever to like tell us what we need to do. But that's all there. It is. It absolutely is there. And I think largely I am going to look at the Liberal government that we've had to contend with for the the most... It's the Liberal government. Like, don't want to, like, sound like an old broken record, but there has been this denial of climate for X amount of time. So when I was speaking to somebody else earlier this week, uh, they were telling me that they have been involved in the Gippsland Climate Network for eight years and that the Climate Network has been going for years before that. This is, like, the writing has been on the walls in the Latrobe Valley. It just hasn't... No one's been listening. Like, all of these conversations have been occurring and no one's had the power to make it happen because of government. Yeah, I agree. It feels like it's kind of cyclical too. Like people yeah. come in, they're like, oh my God, we could totally make it better. Then they either get burnt out or the money dries up or whatever and they have to leave. <laughs> and then nothing really ever tangible changes. And maybe the different thing is now like these $40 billion worth of renewable projects are literally happening. Okay, cool. But then how do we ensure that when things filter through, the community actually one, is engaged in a meaningful way so that, two, the money that the community should benefit from is used in a way that the community wants. 
that would be my goal. Otherwise, who's going to control where that goes? Isn't that going to get like super crispy and super evil? Super evil and super crispy. <laughs> allegedly. Definitely, allegedly. <laughs> well, let's just look, use the example, the giant fucking smoking gun example that we have in front of us right now, which is the overseas owners of the power stations that are operating in the Latrobe Valley right now. One of these overseas owners that have been operating forever, everyone's known about renewables, everyone's known this is over, um, and they're only just now taking up their mission to be part of sol- the solar and wind revolution. When How noble. They've been beating a dead coal. <laughs> like, <laughs> Brilliant. You know that old You've been saying, working on that one. <laughs> beating a dead coal, burning a dead coal for ages and not listening because no one has made them and it costs money to transition. Now we've got, we've got still overseas operators and owners coming in to build wind farms offshore in Australia. All for offshore wind farms, I think they're great. I think the energy is there. But who is ensuring that they're... Yeah, the same mistakes could happen again with the responsibility that we require from these owners. Exactly. That's the thing. And I think that's what's scary. So it seems like the same system... It's complex, isn't it? Because you want to, as like someone who's a greenie or whatever, yeah. coloured-haired fucking green, yeah. you want to be like, yay, renewables. But it really isn't that simple because it has to be, yay, renewables, but also workers' rights, environmental rights, community, community rights. How do we ensure that all those things happen? Maybe that's some kind of healthy and dream is just not possible <laughs> under capitalism. I don't know. Yeah. But I completely agree that like yes all these conversations need to happen and I understand that we live in a world where you require money to order like in order to make these things go look maybe again these conferences are the first step to everyone coming together to be like actually we need to galvanize a little stronger Mm. around this and maybe that is what's happening we know there there are great activists working in this space who are already talking about these things um but it is a little scary like it's like history repeating itself but with greenwashing exactly the the greenwashing it's it's what it feels like a little bit too and i just i don't i don't trust it because i've got no reason to no um, yeah I mean, think about all of our banks and stuff that are like, don't worry, it's like green, we're carbon offsetting. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. But not, not really, you're still an evil bank. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, there's heaps of evil banks, but it, on the topic of good banks, Bank Australia. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, Ashley works at the Latrobe Valley Authority. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just because... I know this episode is about the Gippsland New Energy Conference, but as our podcast is Latrobe Valley-centred, I thought I would throw in a clip explaining what the Latrobe Valley Authority actually is because we haven't touched on that at all in this season, and I think that it is actually an important moving part. And also, I've attached a little clip on the end there about Ashley's hopes, personal hopes for the future of the Latrobe Valley because we do, but it's quite different to what we usually hear. Now I find myself at the uh, Latrobe Valley Authority in the energy team. Uh, you know, sometimes I still pinch myself that I'm very grateful for working in this space. You know, we're on the cusp of doing a uh, not a business as usual government approach. Like the Latrobe Valley Authority has been given the authority <laughs> to trial and work with the framework of smart specialisation out of European Union, which is a a different approach where we bring together academia, industry, government and community all at the table to co-design an evidence-based solution for the future. So the Latrobe Valley Authority is, I guess, a little bit different in our role is to make sure that there's local jobs in that transition, that whatever energy that we have, whether it's geothermal, bioenergy, offshore wind, floating solar, batteries, it goes on and on, is to make sure that there's economic benefit, that there's local supply chain, there's local people 
and plus also work with the training organisations around the workforce capability. Best case scenario is that we still have both of the Loyang power stations operating. Now, they won't be using coal as their fuel source. They might be using another source of energy. Now, whether that's solar thermal, whether it's geothermal, whether it's a bioenergy or whether it's a mixture, they might be the catalyst for offshore wind and hydrogen. So they might be the hub of the hydrogen for the state. I think that the supply chain in Latrobe Valley and Wellington Shire will be building and participating in the national offshore wind market. We'll be building blades and turbines and a whole bunch of other stuff related to that, which is still better economically and carbon footprints from getting it all in from Denmark. And there'll be a whole row rows and rows and rows of industrial hothouses that might be vertical farming and that'll be producing lots of food using geothermal heating in a circular economy. Um, And there'll be also growth in a lot of other markets around food and fibre. Farms will be participating with renewable energy where as conglomerates of farms, they might be used like a battery storage system that can take excess energy out of the system. It's a bit more of a flat tier structure where everybody is participating in the energy sector of some sort and there's jobs and growth around tourism and, and food, food and fibre opportunities. And if we move to the coast a little bit, um, we'll have a, a growing seaweed industry. We're already working with Deakin University at the moment, looking at what species can be grown because seaweed's a fantastic macroalgal. Microalgaes are small algae that live essentially related to the mushroom family, if that's in a really small version, whereas a macroalgae is like a giant big seaweed kelp. What we know about seaweed fibre is it's a billion dollar industry globally and growing. Before we get too excited about seaweed, I just wanted to say that the reason I've left the clip about the Latrobe Valley Authority in is because they are one of the major players in Latrobe Valley at the moment uh, in terms of deciding what a transition looks like with jobs and training and everything like that for the Latrobe Valley and the community. And also, I just wanted to say that the LVA recently brought out a survey um, that was with consul- consulting with the community, and I had two questions on it. Really quickly clarify, this isn't a criticism of Ashley. Hall no. I just mean the LVA largely, like what Ashley's saying, that it's a new design where it consults with community. Is That's what, what I'm hitting on from that clip. So uh, so the two questions that were on the survey, Josie, as you would know because you filled it out, were what opportunities do you think industry transition will bring for our region? But see, that's so. it's like that question where they're like, do you guys want – remember when they had the referendum question, but they worded it in such a way where you couldn't really answer bad. It's like – there's no there's no space for like what if I don't think yeah and what are the parameters I know like there I'm, needs to be parameters like that is too big a question like it's an essay question it fully is and yeah. is there an entire field of like how to do like surveys to get responses right? that prime people to like actually give the information I don't know I'm sure there is even like there that's I'm a whole sure. thing yeah and the second question is what strengths can we build on for a positive and proactive transition to a vibrant and inclusive region in 2035 think about the demographic of right. Latrobe Valley think about it yeah. just for everyone for a moment those questions and the people 
who's engaging with that? That's it. And what it presumes is a high level of already existing knowledge, which, again, none of the groundwork has been done with bringing people along. And the only people who are sort of doing that work seem to be, like, independent activists or artists taking up the mantle and sort of desperately trying to do that with the community themselves. If anything, it kind of just gives a very poignant example or a symbolic example of the kind of, like, I don't know, lip service to community engagement that feels like, I mean, I could be Mm -hmm. wrong. I'm sure there are good people trying to do good work in all of these places. And that's what we're, you know, we're learning. And I understand like there is red tape and government is slow and all that kind of stuff. I get that. But this place has been so overlooked for so long. Doesn't it just feel like we're getting like billions of dollars to just reinforce the same status quo? That's, I think when I went to the GN. G-N-E-C. I felt like it was a conversation that had already been decided by the adults in the room. It wasn't a conversation. We were being told that this is an energy future. And I understand that there is a good argument for that future. And I understand it's bringing jobs and money to the region. I am for that, obviously. But it's like the lacking side of it is all of the other things we could do that need to be done to rehab the land, to make this a livable place that won't just be the same problem when whatever is after renewables happens. It's just the same cycle. And that's extremely frustrating. It is. So that is why I was excited to learn about community-owned <laughs> and benefiting energy projects. I am really sceptical of industry because I, we haven't been given a good reason to trust it. And privatisation has been a fucking schmozzle. Don't be using <laughs> such big phrases, Steph. Are you sure? <laughs> All right, God. I by schmozzle. It's been a schmozzle. And that is why, like, the proposition of bringing back the SEC and things are so exciting for this election. Stop being a schmozzle, everybody. And now, on to Elgu. Elgu! That is the great... Okay, so from Shamozel to Algu. The the very comprehensive idea that Ashley has about the future of Latrobe Valley was interesting to me because... Delicious. Seaweed. <laughs> Who knew that seaweed could actually be an instrumental part of our transition tra- strategy in Gippsland? Obviously, Latrobe Valley is nowhere near any beaches or water, but we do have a lot of edges out edges. in Gippsland. <laughs> Why not put some offshore wind farms out there and just, like, get onto some freaking seaweed? Can I make an argument against? Sure. I'm deathly afraid of seaweed. <laughs> You my eat dad sushi? used to no, yeah, but it doesn't come at me. So I remember being chased around the beach by my dad in like a horrifying <laughs> Who seaweed. Have that memory? Yeah, so then let's not make our whole industry about these horrifying yeah. clumps. But it is so, interesting. I never I really didn't think seaweed was on the uh the smorgasbord board of options. So we're just gonna move right on ahead. <laughs> we're just gonna glide past the new the burgeoning sushi industry. Yeah. Great. And um we're <laughs> we're gonna take a hard pivot pivot back to the significance of the Gippsland New Energy Conference. So so here's Ashley with some more info on who was at the GNEC and what that what it means for a smooth transition to have all of the players communicate. You know, which is part of conferences today where all of the developers are here, state governments here, local governments here, training organisations are here, sharing a lot of our information so that we can all work together to say, well, how do we make this a smooth transition. If we look at the big stuff, you know, we want to get as much local people involved in the construction phase, which is a mountain of work, but the game really is about the operations and maintenance it's because that's where the full-time jobs are all the way. I actually want to speak a little bit about Star of the South, who have been working in community around Yarram for quite some time to get what everyone is calling social licence, um, to be able to build the wind farm. So they are a company that have been from all of the information I've been given, um, they are doing really well at that. So there's still some opposition from local people 
about the wind farms. We spoke with Edwina from the Sea Dragon Wind Farm, which is a fucking great name for a wind sea farm. Dragon. Like, Edwina not only works in wind farms, she also lives near a wind farm. So we're going to hear a little bit from Edwina. Hi. <laughs> so am I allowed to laugh and no, giggle please, at the beginning? No, please. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> my name is Edwina Vega, and I'm from Flotation Energy, and we're building the Sea Dragon uh, offshore wind farm down here. What I wanted to say was that I live in Balan. Balan has got three wind farms around it. Um, the Yaloak wind farm, Lal Lal and the Moorabal wind farm. And they're all pretty sizable. We've been there for four years. And what we have noticed over um, those four years, watching the wind farm being constructed, waiting for the turbines to be commissioned and start spinning, which they all are now, it looks amazing, is that the whole town has been really invigorated. Moorable Wind Farm has a um, community grants program, and which is um, paid for by the wind farm itself, but it's managed by the community. And so the community choose what money will go where. What she says is the town of Balan has become really invigorated since wind farms have began operating around it. And she went on to tell us that more shops have opened, that there's more people in the streets and just generally more activity and more vibe. Now, this wasn't can't be attributed to like census growth, but she attributes it to the activity that the wind farm is bringing to the area because there's more money and people are not feeling forgotten. Edwina mentions the Moorable wind farm community grants program which the community is actually in charge of distributing apparently the grants program has meant upgrades to the local tennis courts local fire stations community hall upgrades in the town towns around Balan, and a new library the community is directly benefiting from the wind farms and in control of the money uh, for the marulable community grants program so we're going to chuck in a link to from some more information about that particular wind farm and of course flotation energy and sea dragon in the show note um, um, Edwina, uh, like, as I said, she works for wind farms and is so excited about them. 10 out of 10 seems to love her job. Big wind farm fam. Big wind farm fam. And um, she also, as she lives near one, she speaks about some of the concerns that people have about wind farms. And Getting the wind crazies. Let's play <laughs> that clip, please, Tracy. It's quite hard to get close to a turbine because it's usually on private property, they're on private farmland. But there is one turbine that's actually quite close to a little side road and you could get out of your car and this thing was, you know, just 10 metres away and you could almost stand under it. You could hear the wind going through the blades, but that was it. Could you sleep with the sound, do you think? Um, You can't have a turbine that close to your house and there are actual regulations about that. And there's been a lot of discussion about the sound that turbines make and whether that affects people's health. General consensus now, or scientific consensus, is that no, it doesn't. Uh, it's a strange, uh, people call it wind turbine syndrome. And what's interesting is that most people who suffer wind turbine syndrome come from English-speaking countries. Now this is, so there's, there are no diseases that are language-specific, obviously. They come from English-speaking countries because that's where the noisiest, loudest anti-turbine um, groups live. So they spread the, the information the, or the misinformation and people react and say, it must be the turbines that's making me feel terrible. And But the turbines just aren't close enough to the houses. All turbines require servicing and care and maintenance, which means you always have a team of service technicians. The technology behind turbines is always changing. It is improving all the time. There's R&D happening all over the world. 
And it means that unlike coal, which has reached its dead end and doesn't improve, you'll find that today, I mean, gosh, like 20 years ago, a wind farm would last 20 years. Now they're lasting 30 years. 85% of a wind turbine can be recycled. You can also remove old generators from the nacelles and put modern generators in there. You can keep the towers and put on your blades. I mean, the, the, you're constantly being able to upgrade this kind of stuff. And it's incredibly exciting. Wow, you were not kidding. She is like extremely excited about fucking wind turbines. Right? Yeah. Such passion. Other people's passion is infectious. It is. It is infectious. And I think it is really exciting and it's new. Every time being at the GNEC, wrapping my head around the fact that the renewable energy sector could be different to fossil fuels. Yeah. And I think that that's really important to remember. But I think we have to make sure it is also. So, you know, the misinformation around wind turbine syndrome, I think it's pretty serious. It's largely responsible for the holdups at the Delburn wind farm is people being concerned about this. And they have a right to be concerned because we don't have reason to trust industry. And I just want to keep going back to that yeah. with fossil fuels. Yeah. Like, that's why it's important. And as we'll learn the data a little bit. Well, there's data. There's some data. Well, yeah. We are not actually going over the data, but we'll oh. give you access to the data. Oh, great. Because we're talking to an expert in community-based energy projects. So going on from what Edwina told us, let's go further. How can renewable industries be different to the fossil fuel industries we've grown familiar with? More specifically, what are community-owned wind farms and solar farms? What do they look like and how do the communities tangibly benefit? To help answer some of those questions, and I know your questions, Josie, and hopefully yes. everyone else's questions, we got to spoke to the incredibly inspiring Dr. Jarrah Hicks. Dr. Jarrah Hicks has over 10 years' experience in the community energy sector in Australia and overseas. She is a founding director of the Community Power Agency, which sounds real good, and has worked across community, government, corporate, and academic sectors. Recently, she completed a, P completed a PhD, so you know she's real smart, that analyzes the outcomes and impact from community-owned wind energy projects in small regional communities. How apt is that? So apt. Like, so what the hell? We spoke to Dr. Hicks about a lot of things, but in these next clips, we asked Dr. Hicks to introduce herself and if she had a key moment in her life that brought her to be interested in climate and energy solutions. My my name is Jara Hicks. I'm one of the founding directors of the Community Power Agency. We are a not-for-profit workers' cooperative and we support communities across Australia to get engaged and involved um, and benefit from the transition to renewable energy. So that looks like a lot of different things, but we often are supporting communities to set up their own renewable energy projects that are, that are locally owned and locally initiated. I, I actually spent seven years of my growing up in Asia, in, in the Philippines and in Thailand. And as a child, I would come and go from living in very small, remote, relatively poor communities in Southeast Asia and then coming back to Australia. So I was quite aware of the different ways that people live, but also just sort of an innate awareness of the inequality and the way that the affluence and the privilege that we have here in Australia and how that impacts on the rest of the world. That awareness that our decisions around the type of energy we consume, how much energy we consume, how much everything we consume, that that has implications for the planet and for everyone that lives on the planet. And so wanting to become more conscious of that and be able to live and work in ways that felt more equitable and fair and just. I thought it was really interesting to hear about the 
in the perspective of moving between developing nations and also Australia as a child and how that influenced her realisation of the effects that the Western world is having. And she told us that she was studying developmental studies at the University in Newcastle, which is the world's largest coal exporting port. And around that time, she became interested in working with communities whose livelihoods would be affected by the move away from fossil fuels. She wanted to work with these communities to create empowering solutions that were led by communities. She sees community-owned renewable energy as the positive solution, the yes solution to a lot of no's. Dr. Jaro's PhD was all about community energy and it helped me understand some of the questions we mentioned earlier. So I was super lucky. I got to travel to Scotland um, to a very small island in Orkney um, called Shappensea as well as the Isle of Skye as well as two communities here in Australia, so Hepburn Wind over near Dalesford and Denmark in WA. Uh, And all of those communities have community-owned wind energy projects of one kind or another. They're very different from each other. And what my PhD looked at was what happens in a region, a small regional community, when you go through the process of establishing a community-owned wind project. And so I I went there and I spent a few weeks each with these communities and talked to a whole bunch of different people and it was just super inspiring how how people had you know worked together to create an amazing infrastructure project that was then able to supply their communities with clean energy but also to generate income and to be a catalyst for other forms of important change that their community wanted to pursue so I'll give an example like in Chappensea their turbine they just had one turbine it was owned by a not-for-profit um, like a community trust and all of the income from the sale of electricity from their wind turbine went towards funding community projects it's a very small community of 300 people and they funded you know all sorts of different projects you know a community bus a community meals program just so many things and and so that was super inspiring and you know very different business model but Hepburn Wind they are owned by a cooperative of over 2,000 people most of whom are local local people to the, the immediate area those people invested the money to build those two turbines and again they sell the electricity into the grid portion of those funds that they generate go towards supporting other energy projects in their community. So they've they've been able to put solar on the roof of a lot of different community buildings that, of course, helps them to save money and then they, they can channel that money towards other projects that they do. They also now, as a community, they've learnt these skills and they've got this ambition and this knowledge around energy that they're actually becoming a zero-net energy community and that they're able to really tackle that goal and really make fast progress towards it. Wow, right? So, um, I yeah. I love her. I know. I love her too. I went to another one of her talks recently and that it was really illuminating. So it's it's speaking with people like that who've actually been out to communities and seen what it's like in other parts of the world because we are behind in Australia. So at the talk I went to, she actually showed pictures from, I'm pretty sure it was in Scotland, but the community had made their own wind turbines out of recycled fiberglass and wood oh because they got sick of waiting for the government to do it for them. So we yeah. need like one Yara for every industrialist and then I think we'll be fine. Totally. We need to measure it out a little more. So Jara worked with Taryn Lane on the Vic government's Community Engagement and Benefit Sharing Renewable Energy Development Guide. That is something that exists. So what we're talking about, it exists. She has made it. 
our industry and government and everything can look at that to consult and benefit from the work of Jara and Taryn's PhD and studies and all of those but findings. But do they? That's the thing. Like, I work in an industry where we get shitloads of reports and then they just go, people like, oh, report. Great. And then nothing. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I am going to put in the show notes a link to that renewable energy development guide so people can peruse that. But I'm not sure. And I don't know how to make one of those. It's one of those things I don't know how to make sure either. Jarrah and Taryn also worked with the Clean Energy Council. If you could play that clip for me, please, Josie. My career started working with communities on community energy projects. But what we realised was um, actually we're learning a lot about the relationship between communities and renewable energy development. And we could see that there, there was a need to learn about how to improve the relationship between local communities and some lar- and large-scale renewable energy development. So the guideline that we wrote for the Victorian government was based on what we'd learned about that relationship between communities and renewable energy development, and also a bunch of work that both Taryn Lane and I had done with corporate renewable energy developers. So helping them to understand what practices of community engagement are working well, and how projects might share benefits with local communities and then consolidating that into a guideline. I guess through that wanting to take the best of what's happening in the corporate renewable energy space and also the learning from community energy projects um, and present that in a way that was going to help to lead better practice around the way that community engagement and benefit sharing is done in and around renewable energy projects. Corporate industry are not always good at sharing lessons among themselves. You know, there's there's some sense of like, oh no, this is important proprietary knowledge. But actually once once you facilitate that a little bit, there is a willingness and a desire to learn. Generally also a willingness like to help lift the game because it is broadly recognised that if we don't do this the social aspect of the transition well, it's actually not gonna work well for anyone. And we're not gonna be able to get our projects over the line or achieve the targets that we need to achieve. The transition to renewable energy is never going to be a purely technical thing. It's always located and situated within a social context. Communities are essential to that social context. And without a strong base of support within our communities and without a strong understanding for why renewable energy is important, I think projects will struggle to get the the acceptance and the support they need to succeed. They're the hosts of this technology um, and they deserve to have a seat at the table and they deserve to benefit from projects that are in their backyard. And then in terms of community energy projects, I think they provide an avenue for for people to be directly involved, to build their literacy around renewable energy and energy efficiency and to directly benefit from the transition. And by virtue of being directly involved and directly benefiting, that really builds people's support for the transition, not just for those individual projects, but for the transition at large. So even though community projects might be small in terms of megawatts, I think they contribute significantly to the national conversation and the dialogue and the understanding of why it's important for us to do renewables at all scales. So I know this has been a lot of information and a lot of new stuff for me and like there's guides, guides exist, people are doing studies. Like I know this isn't news and it shouldn't be surprising but it is though it is well i think it feels like it feels like people are acting like this doesn't already like oh yeah. so much to be done no it isn't someone already wrote a book about it they wrote Just the book on it they look wrote at the, the book so let's all go go and look at the book yeah it's been proven that when community and industry don't 
communicate well, then the projects fail. Doesn't that seem like a no? I don't know. I don't know that I'd need to do any research to tell you that. Like, when is that? Like, where is that good though? Same Z's. Like I feel that. like uh, get my little magnifying <laughs> right? glass out and look at the clues. But surely we don't need to be told. We don't. But. Uh, some people do, and I think when money gets involved, that it becomes sticky, and that you know, it's it, it's a added layer of complication. So, for our last clip from Dr. Jara Hicks, we're gonna hear what the importance of the GNEC to the Latrobe Valley was. I was really pleased that today there were a lot more community voices. So we heard from a number of community-led projects, like the Community Power Hub, and the projects that they've they've worked with in various communities, like Malakuta. So that was great. I think the benefit, so, the, the, you know, this conference had people from industry, training organisations, government, not-for-profits and community organisations. And I think the benefit of those actors being able to talk together and to talk about how they might collaborate and having it located here in Gippsland, I think helps to develop the local the networks locally that will create opportunities directly for communities. So I'll use the training as an example. Government needs to know what training gaps there are so that they can fund program development. Industry needs to communicate what the skills and training needs are. And then local institutions need to be able to be supported to develop those. And then there needs to be a whole like communication and engagement piece so that local people understand the job opportunities that are coming and understand the retraining needs and understand what institutions are offering which courses. There's a whole bunch of actors that need to come together and there's a whole bunch of engagement work that needs to happen. But by having those conversations like we have here today, I think positions us to be on the path to realising that. Ooh, that's good. Really good, right? So now I'm sure you can see my neat little trail that I've led us right back to the Latrobe Valley. Now we're going to speak to the mayor of Latrobe Valley, <gasps> Kelly O'Callaghan. Um, we asked her what the importance of the GNEC was to the Latrobe Valley. The importance of these conversations is that it brings a focus for everyone who wants to participate in what the future will be for our community. So when we're talking about new energy and transition and transformation, our community have been very focused on that for quite some time. So in advance of Hazelwood closure, as we moved past mine fire, you know, those kinds of things. So we already had a bit of a head start in terms of the conversations we had. So we understood community aspiration and what that looks like. What a conference like this does is bring it into broader focus across Gippsland. And the great benefit for our community in those conversations happening in that way is there's more people at the table. There's more ideas, there's more initiatives, there's more opportunities. And the other thing is, particularly where communities have been talking about transition and transformation for quite some time, you can start to get tired. So it also boosts the energy of the communities who've been having the conversations for quite a while around having extra support, a few more champions for the cause, if, if nothing else. But I think it also helps us to refresh our thinking. It challenges the way we've looked at things before and how we can look to them in the future. And it also creates a much clearer pathway in terms of how communities can find their way to participate in these conversations. That was really great to hear from the Mayor, but she has said something that was about inviting community in to have these conversations, which is really dependent on whether or not the information gets out in the first place. Yeah. So I know we're part of that. We're trying to disseminate the information, as we've said. And I hope that for the next year's Gippsland New Energy Conference, that there is a lot more conversations happening in community, a lot more, you know, passes made available. I know, I think there was around 50 
community passes. We're giving out uh, this information that I've heard secondhand, FYI too, but around 50 passes were given out to community groups. We're going to speak to Marianne Robinson, who got um, a pass as a community group member next. We got one as a community group member. So I would like to understand, though, I, like community engagement, yes, obviously, but what is the hierarchical steps up so that someone could actually take that and do something tangible with it? What I'm not hearing in all of this is like, okay, you gather the data, then what? How do you... Because not everyone's going to reach consensus. There's always going to be people who have very different perspectives about it. I think, like, your point about education is a super, like, how do you bring everyone along? I don't think you're ever going to be able to bring everyone along. But how do we bring along? I think at this point, it feels like we're bringing along 20%. Right. And maybe we should be trying for, like, 50 yeah, or something. Like, wrong, I'm not like, talking in yeah. absolutes. But, yeah, it just feels a little bit like um, community engagement. Yes. But then what? Then what? Like, exactly. I would love to know those next steps. And maybe we can find an expert that would talk or speak to the, I guess, what is it, like corporate structure or whatever of how you actually take that much data and create a tangible solution that is within it's that structure. It's got to be kind of a lifelong process, like, I'm guessing. who's in charge here? Like, I don't know. Who, like, is it, is it the LVA? Like, who's doing this? Because it all sounds good. Yeah. It obviously needs, like, organising and a leader and, like, just going to that and seeing all the different stakeholders who have their own very different ideas of what the future should look like is a little concerning because we know within capitalism the person with the most money is pretty much going to get to do what they want. Exactly. And so that's the future we're going to get. So how do you ensure that people power manifests actually i don't know steph how like i don't have the You're a doctor right that's what it, that's where my mind goes right? like i think all I of this think, sounds so good right? but i'm like yeah but then what and yeah and that's not a reason not to try i guess no. i just want to understand right i want to understand too we asked the mayor if there was something that she wanted the community and the general public to know about renewable energy or if there was a myth that she would like to bust and this is what she said that it's taking away from this isn't taking away from an industry that existed. This isn't um, removing an opportunity that had been there before. It's in addition to, it's building on what we do, it's focusing on the strengths we already have and making something newer, better, more informed by where we need to be moving in an aspirational sense but also in a practically applied way, um, that this isn't a conversation about in any way having shame or concern about what happened before. I talk a lot about workers in power industry, as I said, you know, my dad was one, as were many of my family members, and they brought a real richness of connection and pride to the stations they built, to the work they did, to the stuff down the mine that they were involved in. And they were very proud and they worked very hard and they created a level of economic sustainability and benefit out for our community. And we need to respect that legacy but help the community understand that the changes we're making now are new opportunities and it's not taking away from. It's an, it's something that we will all build on together and we'll um, be informed by what our new future will look like and that's a good thing. It's not taking away from what we already had. It's about reflecting on it, respecting it and, and moving forward. So, yeah, I thought that was a really good point that the renewable energy industry really isn't taking away from something. Like, there is a sense, particularly in the Latrobe Valley, that because we're losing the coal-fired power station, and that's the Greenies' fault, and that's the renewable energy industry's fault. But it's not, and it's not taking away from, it's building upon. I just wanted to include that clip from the mayor, and it was great. I think that sense in the valley that it is taking away is huge. It's right. hugely, and I guess that's, like, largely 
right-wing media has been like consistently telling people that they are losing something, right. they are being taken away. <laughs> Whether that be in the energy or deforestation or whatever, we're constantly hearing that narrative that we're losing all of these jobs. But please, let's start talking about the positives. And there's so much to gain. So much to gain. And also, like I understand the sense of loss. Like I do. Like I, we talked about this. Like we both felt, even though we're not like pro goal, no. a sense of loss when they knocked Hazelwood down. Absolutely. I understand. Like it's part I of our history. It in my body. But and these aren't absolutes. We don't no. have to just like shit on it. We can have music. I mean, in Germany, they have all those coal museums. Yeah. They do sculpture around it. They have all of sort of memorabilia around it. They even turned one of the giant dredges into a fucking rave. Right. What? So. There is so many things we could do and like, with our mining history. It doesn't have to be a loss. Um, so we are down to our last interview Ooh, subject. Who's it going to be? So who's it going to be? At the GNEC, we ran into Marianne Robinson, the Secretary for Voices of the Valley. We didn't have the chance to speak with her on the day, but I wanted to get her perspective on the conference too and on what it meant for the Latrobe Valley. I asked her to comment on the community representation at the GNEC and she had a great answer. So let's hear that clip. Well, I'm Marianne Robinson. I'm the Secretary of Voices of the Valley. I'm a long-time resident of, of Churchill uh, with a great interest in renewable energy and especially community-owned renewable energy. I think the New Energy Conference, Gippsland New Energy Conference, was a conference of big corporations talking to each other. And there is a place for that. I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. There is a place for that. And I think probably what we're seeing is that these corporations that want to set up wind farms are talking to each other and are to some extent collaborating. But it, it wasn't a conference for community members. I was only there as a community member because we got a, a free ticket. Otherwise it would have been, you know, just out of price range. It was about showcasing good things. And yes, you need to showcase good things, but you don't, you need to showcase them more than just to each other. You need to go out and tell the rest of the area that these things are happening and that they will make a difference. And I'm, I'm disappointed that there hasn't been very much reporting about what was actually said there because people need to know that wind farms are viable provided they get the legislative support which has only been possible since November last year, they can go ahead and, and build. That message is not getting out very well, I don't think. It was really valuable to hear somebody else who had that, that same feeling as us, that the community wasn't represented, that yes, it was an industry event and that that is important to have and all of that, but the community still needs to know that information. I well, I think so. I just want to reiterate that it's my understanding that the people who ran the event do acknowledge that given the time frame that they didn't get to do as much community engagement. So I don't yes. know that that was like the intention. And I think that they both all acknowledged that they knew they could do more. So I guess when we put this out there, the critique is more coming from like, you know, the, the operators also know that they could do more in that space. And because the event was thrown together so quickly, that was the deficit area. But I think like having been through that now, my understanding is their intention is to do more Correct. of that. And so I guess we'll see next year what that looks like. And that's quite exciting because maybe next year it really will 
be that forum that clearly needs to happen. It was a really informative event and that's the crux of why I think it's so important that the information get out. So GNEC 2023, which has a really good that's reach the hashtag. <laughs> yeah. Like let's let's all learn. Let's all let's be all there. We'll let's see all you there. be there. So I asked Marianne what her vision for the future of La Trobe Valley was and if that was changed or shaped at all in any way by attending the GNEC. And this is what she said. That's a very hard question <laughs> to answer. Something that worries me about the future of the Latrobe Valley is the opposition to change, which means that change is likely to happen in a whole lot of other places. And the traditions that have been established here with, around power are going to be lost. If, if we don't have wind power and solar power in the Latrobe Valley, all we'll have is the grid going past us. It's interesting because, like, I don't know, I feel that we lack clear data on what the community thinks. So you and I had that sense before we went out and talked to the community that, like, a lot more people were, like, I don't know, anti this than they seem to be, right? And I think we're having more and more experiences where I'm like, oh, people that I would, you know, maybe unfairly have assumed might be like, fuck that, are actually like, yeah, just get it done. So almost it feels like, one, I can't see the wood through the trees anymore of like, what is the actual data of what the community actually thinks and who is gathering that data so that we yeah, have it a better survey. Yeah. Um, I feel like a Facebook poll would just like pop off really hard in that more well neighborhood like, house I've group. seen the comment section. I've seen Pay It Forward Gippsland. I follow Absolutely. all the community groups and I so, have notifications. They would love right, to talk about it. I got a plan. Here we go, right? Really big survey. You have to do it. It's compulsory. You get a $10 gift voucher to like, Bonk, I don't know, yeah. nut, nut shop or something. But anyway, the point is that everyone fills it in like 80%. 80%. Yeah. Then we get a true understanding of what the fuck everyone wants. Yeah. I'm pretty sure everyone just wants to know where their jobs are coming from and to have it happen. Let's just start there and then we give that information to the people who implement the solutions yeah. and just they just do it. All and right? There we go. They just Sorted. do it. Great. Let's do it. I feel like I personally could run this really well and someone should pay me to do it. But, you know, I have, well, a, I have a job, so yeah. it's fine. Like, we don't need to do you know, But if you, you guys need help, like, just hit us up. Like, yeah. Anyway, I think Marianne raises some really interesting points. I guess why I like asking people about their hopes for the future, though, is because I'm, like, looking for maybe ideas of sparks that we haven't heard yet right. and I guess like reiterating like I understand why someone would be a little despondent at this point though because again it's like we've been talking about these hopeful futures for right. a very long time I'm why don't we just like, pick one and like go like yeah, let's just do yeah, it pick exactly. the one with like the wind or yeah. whatever fine great yeah. do it love it just go let's let's go let's do go, the wind let's go let's go let's go let's go ah! this is too fucking slow now Josie is your brain, like, super full and tight I feel like we just went through a whole journey like whole I know I was day. there but I had forgotten almost entirely. <laughs> and everyone's point was really good. Like, when we were there, it felt like a real buzz. And then there was Such very little fallout. Like, I know some of the mainstream media covered it maybe on the first day, but it's like an article here and there. And I think a single article does not break through the noise. You right. need, I mean, uh, yeah, not to like out myself as someone who works in marketing, but you kind of need a concerted campaign. I understand why these guys didn't have that given the timeline and everything. But I think this way about renewable energy in general, like we need like the gut milk of renewable energy, don't yes, we? Please. We need like someone, I mean, again, I'm pretty sure that's like what Mike Cannon-Brooks and those kind of like billionaires who want to do that kind of stuff are like looking to do, right? How to get that campaign across the line mm -hmm. in the most effective way. And I feel like all of this is kind of missing that central 
anchor point. I don't know what it needs to be, but it feels like it's missing. And so we have these big events where, again, the intention is very good. And I do think a lot of good came so much good. from the event. I mean, great sandwiches. Let's just put that on the yeah, record as well. Yeah, they looked amazing. Oh my Not God. vegan, but super good. I mean, good. I really, yeah. if I could, I would have honed exactly. into those. Yeah. But I think, so it really was good. And I feel like a lot of conversations were sparked. It was like a Sex Pistols gig. Yeah. yeah no, like everybody who watched that went off and had I like really good. That yeah. yeah. It's that kind of thing. And, I, I'm, I'm Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> You can be Viv. All right, sure. Yeah. I'm super famous now and super fancy. I'm a fuckhead. So. (laughs) You are. Um, Okay. But yeah, so I feel like having had that experience now, having relived it, I I am reminded of how much um, conversation. And I want to know where those conversations are at now. The $40 billion figure. And like actually like getting to hear from from the people in the industry and in the business that this is happening. Like we said this at the top and I want to say it at the end. Like this is happening now. Um, it's real. It's not theoretical. This transition is occurring. There is a lot of good people in those industries also working yes. on solutions and they have climate in mind. And I also think there was sort of just like climate change is a given vibe. Right. I don't know. Hearing those solutions back to back, hearing the sort of critique, I am excited for the next one. And I guess like our intention here is like to give all of you as much of an insight as possible within an hour. But so much more happened. And so, so Steph more. this time, who loves doing show notes, has put a very comprehensive list together of show notes. Yes, some might say it's a little too comprehensive, but (laughs) we'll see. So once again, we'd like to give a big uh, thank you to the folks at the Gippsland New Energy Conference for having us. In particular, I just wanted to give a little shout out to Rowena McNaughton and Sue Mitchin who were our main contacts before the conference and who we discussed things with and they got us on board and it was really great to meet them, but also anyone who was involved in setting it up. And a big thank you to all of our guests, Darren McCubbin, Ashley Hall, Edwina Vega, Dr. Jarrah Hicks and Marianne Robertson for being so generous with your time and sharing your knowledge with us. You can find our resources in the show notes for this episode below. The music for Coalface is by Anonymous420 and Loyalty Freak Music. This series is written, edited and produced by Josie Hess and Stephanie Sabrinskis. If you like what you heard, find us on Instagram at ColfacePod or send us an email to ColfacePodcast at gmail.com. Look out for the next episode of Coalface.